Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Kenny Wallace Show, brought to you by JEGS, the leader in high-performance aftermarket car parts. Remember to go to JEGS.com for anything and everything you need. Wow, take a deep breath. This is a big deal for me. The very first Kenny conversation and probably the number one driver in my generation, Tony Stewart. Tony, thank you for doing this. Man, for you, I wouldn't have missed this for the world, bud. You know that. Well, I really appreciate it. So we, we're going to call this the Kenny conversation because I feel like if I have to make an audible, you know, it's, it, it shouldn't be back and forth like a tennis game. If you want to interrupt, you know, same here. We'll have a good time. So let's start it out like this. Um, that smoke, that nickname, smoke, it is so badass. The logo on your, on your belt, on all your fire suits. I don't know if we've ever got to the bottom of that. We know it's smoke, but when and where and when did you realize they were naming you that? Well, it uh, it's evolved, let's say, uh, over the years, but it started at IRP in Indianapolis at Raceway Park. And I was driving a USAC sprint car for Steve Chrisman and him and his family live about 30 minutes from here in, in southern Indiana. And um, I don't remember exactly what happened that started it, but came off a of turn four and two of us banged wheels and it, I got sideways and it slid right past the end of the pit wall going into turn one and slid in the grass. Well, you've been to IRP. You remember what's down there, light poles. Yeah. So uh, went sliding by the light poles, probably about 10, 15 feet away from, which would have been a disaster if we'd hit those and um, got back in and, and the brother, the older brother, and he's strictly 100% farmer goes, Man, you about smoked those poles, bud. Oh. So he, but he started calling me smoker all the time. And uh, that car that I was driving had a tunnel ram inject injection. So it literally had two intakes about this big around. I mean, when you open it, it was like flushing a toilet. But instead of eight little small stacks, it had two big butterflies that opened up. And and it was it would go lean very easy there. So uh, it made it a little hard to drive on the exit of the corner. So I... I was always hazing the tire a little bit. I was still learning throttle control and how to manage at that time about 750 horsepower. So, uh, so get away from the USAC side. And I went IndyCar racing with team Menard and we blew motors up left and right. And uh, the IndyCar guys knew my nickname was smoke, but they, then they kind of changed the meaning of it to, well, we had smoke coming out of the back of this thing. It goes, there goes smoke again, you know, <laughs> blowing another motor up. So uh, it's changed over the years, the, the the definitions as we went to different series and teams, but uh, it started at IRP in a sprint car. Wow, that's pretty incredible. You know, uh, I have all these questions lined up, but this is the, the perfect segue. I, I feel like uh, great race car drivers like yourself, God-given talents, you know, I was always taught that there's a string from your brain to your ass, to your foot, your hands. 
you're really good at, at throttle control. So you're saying that those early days is what taught that ankle of yours. Is there a thousand different spots in that throttle? It, you better have it. And that's exactly what I tell everybody. You better have a thousand spots on that throttle in every race car you drive other than a drag car. We'll get to that later, but you gotta have a thousand spots and you better know where they're at all the time. So when I broke my leg in 2013, uh, that was the biggest thing we focused on because obviously it was my lower right leg broke both the bones, had to go through a lot of physical therapy. Uh, when I started, my foot literally went three positions. It was here, 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 and then wide open. Mm. So we, we actually mocked up a, a steering wheel and a pedal system and had the same amount of pressure on the throttle pedal. And it was just like, a, it was like a simulator that you would see for iRacing now, but there was no video with it. So it literally was a steering wheel, a steering shaft. I had two shock absorbers on the end of the steering shaft and that I'd just sit there while I was watching TV and just turn it back and forth and back and forth and was working my foot the entire time. And it went from three different positions to back to that thousand eventually. I remember uh, a story you told me. You've been banged up a couple of times. Did, didn't you get injured real early? And you told me that to bring yourself back to 100% like you thought you needed to be. You went to a, a really nice local go-kart track? You're on to it. We, uh, I would say this uh, it was the end of 96, mm. and it was the end of the first IRL season. The season finale was at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, first event on the racetrack. And uh, it was in, I believe, July, and it was 102 degrees out, and myself and my teammate Mark Dismore both blew right rear tires and hit the wall, and it hit flat left side. So mm. broke my shoulder blade my collarbone, back of my left hip and pelvis on the left side. And I was living in an apartment with one of the crew guys uh, on my team who was, who also came from the midget ranks. And uh, I, I started at my mother's house and cause we, we were on a third floor apartment. So getting up and down steps. This is 1996. Yeah. It was not a good deal. No elevator to get up and down. And, uh, but I went to Stefan Johansson's go-kart track on the west side of Indianapolis and a guy named Sean Britt was uh, uh, the general manager there. And he literally would come pick me up at seven 30 every morning. Almost, so smoke can get up early. Uh, yeah. And I, it's not, I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> I'm getting older. I'm starting to get up earlier and earlier and it pisses me off. <laughs> so, uh, but he would carry, literally carry me down two flights of stairs every day, load me in his car, take me to the carting center, uh, they had one cart that had timing and that had lap times on it. They had a, a lap counter on it hmm. and he would put me in that cart with a full tank of fuel. The very first day I made it five minutes and, and had to get out then ran five more minutes. And that's all I could do by the end of 20 days. I got to where I could sit there and ride through a full tank of gas, like literally would start at eight in the morning. And by the time 11 o'clock came, it would run out of fuel. And I'd ran a whole tank of fuel out in an indoor go-kart track, which takes a lot to do. But, um, but I was, the, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is. No, I like it. What I was super impressed about with Sean was he would sit there and grab a stack of paperwork and he would go into the control booth, which was out in the karting area where the computer was. And he would do paperwork and he would look at the lap times. And as soon as he, you know, indoor karting track are really slick. So the longer you run, the more heat you're building in the tires faster you go, faster you go, faster you go. As soon as he would see those lap times start slowing down and going the other way, he knew I was getting tired. 
And he'd let me run about four or five more laps like that. And if it didn't come back down, he'd stop me and make me get out for a couple minutes, get a drink of water, put me back in, get me packed in with foam, send me back out. By the end of that, like I said, didn't, didn't stop at all. So lap times would just literally get, get faster to a certain point and then they'd just stay level and stay consistent. So he was a very big factor in me getting healed up and, and back in a race car quicker. It reminds me of, uh, I, I once asked Dale Sr., I don't know if you remember that Bud shootout back in the day, Bush Clash, whatever they called it. He kept starting last and going to the front, starting last, and he, and he dominated. And I said, my gosh, you were fast. And he says, when you have a good horse, ride it. Yeah. Your conversation, you know, I mean, you kind of mix that in with their – as good as you are, you still work really hard at your craft. And I want the young kids to – understand what you're saying. So that leads me to this question. I think that you're a God-given talent. I think, you know, some, there's times I looked up and said, Lord, why didn't you give me some of Tony Stewart's talent? Have you ever in your career, after everything you've accomplished, just for a moment, driving down the road by yourself, going, I'm a little different than everybody else. Now, I know you're humble, but have you ever thought that? I, I'm very grateful to the man upstairs to give for giving me the talent that I have uh, for sure. Cause you know, I got a text from a buddy of mine that was the very first go-kart I ever drove at a racetrack and, and he's, we're still good friends. I mean, we were, we raced since we were eight years old in go-karts till I got out and go, well, till he got out of go-karts uh, in our, in our early mid teens. But um, yeah, I think about that a lot to be honest, cause and I, you've always heard me joke around there like, man, you're really good. And I'm like, well, I had to be because I'm too lazy to work a real job. Yeah. And, but then years go on and you, re, and you realize it's, it's, there's not a lot of truth to that in all reality. Because, yeah, I didn't like working real jobs. I didn't like, you know, I worked at McDonald's two different times uh, while I was in school. And right after I graduated until I got settled in somewhere, Um uh, I've worked some really crappy jobs along the way to get where we're at, but it was all so I could race. And uh, I, I've realized in motorsports, people don't realize how much work's involved in it from, from a driver's standpoint. Now, you talk about car owners and crew guys, ton of work involved, but it's equally equally taxing for us as drivers because we constantly have to think about what we're doing. I mean, you, you take guys nowadays, this day and age, most guys are very single lane on, on what they want to run when they're young, their parents, the, the soccer mom and dads are in full swing in motorsports now too. And uh, they have their kids path planned for them and their kids buy right into it. And it's a single dimensional plan. They're either going an Indy car route. They're going a NASCAR route. They're going a sprint car route. One or the other. That's what and I you see. Popped and weaved. Yeah. And I did it. I did it all of it at some point. So, uh, but it, it's what you don't see is kids jumping back and forth from different cars. And I think that is honestly what has helped build me to who I am. Uh, it wasn't so much all the hard work and it was all the hard work, but every car you drove was different. And everything that that car wanted you to do with your hands and feet was different. So mm -hmm. you had to be smart enough and sharp enough to sit there and say, okay, the car's telling me what it wants. I just got to figure out how to, manipulate it to so it will do what I want it to do yeah. but you have to do what the car is asking so uh, I always felt like that was an advantage for me uh, going to new racetracks going and driving new cars is that 
I never got stuck with one feel. I, I got used to a lot of different feels and then it made it a lot easier to learn something new every time we made a new step. I, I so badly want to get to the start of the show, which is your drag racing. But, you know, it, these conversations are leading me in different directions. Mark Martin was interviewed and they set up. They said, Mark Martin, tell us about Tony Stewart. You know, it, it's true. You're a badass. You're a tough guy. You're, you're a chip off the old A.J. Foyt block. But Mark said, you're a lover. You're a philanthropist. You do s- such good deeds. Uh, so we know you're a tough guy, but at heart, you're a lover. I mean, you're talking about the, the man carrying you up and down the steps. We hear that you go back to the Dairy Queen, to the, the original owner. I know what you do. Are you are you both? Are you a lover and a tough guy? How would you assess yourself? Yeah, I hate for you to say that because then you're going to ruin my bad reputation. <laughs> well, you, you're a badass. We already know that. But is okay. I'll ask you this: Are you a lover? Uh, yeah, there's there's a softer side to me too. Um, you know, and I'm uh, my eyes are wandering around because I'll be honest. This is the first time in first day in four months that I've been back to my ranch in Indiana. You're checking and your place out while you're talking. I'm to looking me. out the windows because <laughs> it's turkey season, and I'm watching eight turkey cruising along the back That's okay. of the I'm like, Tell man, if saying. I could sneak out there and hide, one of you would have a bad day. That's but, awesome. Um, no, I, I, I do. I, you know, you mentioned the Dairy Queen. I mean, they they sponsored me when I was nine years old in a go kart, and. Um, one of my best friends in town now works for me here at the ranch. And, and I literally texting before I sat down in the chair to, to talk to you. I said, Hey, as soon as we get done, let's go see Bob at Dairy Queen. Cause I know he'll give me a free shake, which a shakes about a dollar 75 now. So, uh, but he is same guy, same store. Um, I race a three quarter midget in Indiana here when I have spare time and my dad's 85 years old. He races one. That's why I still race. But uh, if we, when we run the Columbus Fair and the fairgrounds here, if we win the race, I always do just like I did every Saturday night when I raced go-karts. If we win the next day, I take the trophy into him. He sets it on the counter for the entire year. And uh, then I get it at the end of the season. Okay, this is perfect. This is perfect. Now, let me, let me start. <laughs> We've done 20 minutes and didn't even start the, the conversation. So we know, everybody knows that you've done it all. I mean, if, you know, in this new era, if I Google Tony Stewart, I mean, NASCAR champion, you know, IndyCar champion, you know, don't make me go down the list, but you've done it all. There, there's nothing else to do except what Tony wants to do. We all know that. So you go to uh, race NHRA and, uh, but now you end up in Vegas last week and now you've already done it all, but you win. You win your first NHRA drag race. You send the whole United States and not the states, the world in a tizzy because now it's like, holy crap, he's now he's winning at drag racing. So are you taking that Wally to the Dairy Queen? I don't know about the Wally. It's a little different <laughs> than a, a fairgrounds trophy uh, at a TQ race, but I was... Uh... That was one thing when I got home last night and I was grabbing everything out of the truck and bringing it inside. Uh, you know, when we win an SRX race or we win a sprint car race or whatever it is, you know, if we win something, we always bring it to the kitchen first. And, you know, the my housekeeper here, we call her Berta, like Berta from Two and a Half Men. Yeah. She's, 
just got as much spunk and she doesn't care if it's Johnny Morris that's staying at the house or you or anybody else. She's going to give me the same crap and the same grief. Like I haven't even seen her yet this morning. And I guarantee when I go out there, she's going to look at me and go, you're here. Yeah. How long until you leave again? <laughs> I mean, I just guarantee that's what she's going to say. But um, I love putting it out there because she likes to see it. My, my buddy, Mark, that, that works for us, loves to see it when they get here. And, uh, you know, then then it's a topic of, you know, talking about the race weekend and talking about how it went. So you went to Vegas um, and I want to get I want to get to that. But you do something that comes out a little bit later, came out immediately in your interview, but we all didn't hear about it. You've gone to Vegas a lot in your life. You've won on the cup track. You've won on the bull ring. You've won on the dirt track. And now you're just, you've done historical things. Now you've won in everything on the Vegas complex. Once you realized what you've done, I think you realized it in Victor Lane from the videos I saw. That's a pretty big feather in your cap. Possibly nobody could ever do that. We we honestly thought about it last fall when we ran second at the NHRA race. The very first race I ran, I lost by two ten thousandths of a second, which literally is one inch. It is that big. And there are 15,840 inches in a quarter mile. That's so incredible. you can imagine driving a quarter mile, 15,840 inches, and you lose by one. Are you so, smarter math now because of drag racing? Uh, no, it just, uh, the, the good thing is we get, we all got phones and they got, oh, yeah. <laughs> easier for us. but, um, but yeah, it's, I sat there last year and when, after we won the semifinals, I'm like, holy crap, if we won, I got thinking about it, like I wanted the bull ring in a non-winged sprint car and a, and a midget. Then I won in an AS, an ASCS national race, uh, 360 race at the dirt track. I won my first silver, USAC silver crown race on the dirt track one cup win at the big track and then we were one inch away from completing it and but who would have known that you know four races later and in the spring we're going to come back to vegas and we're going to win by three ten thousandths of a second which is an inch and a half and uh end up completing it so i, I that was probably aside from i think there were three things that i was so grateful of at the top end when we got out of the car i was I was just so excited that we won because you and I are racers. It doesn't care till, till the day we die, we're going to be racing something. If it means we got to race to the toilet to see who gets to the toilet first or <laughs> to get to the buffet or to get to down the hall to see our girlfriend at the nursing home, whatever it's going to be, yeah. we're going to always be racing something. So uh, the win was exciting to begin with. And then I thought, man, this is so great for this team that I'm with the McPhillips family. It's rich senior, rich junior. We call rich senior pops. So I'll refer to him as pops, but uh, him and Eric and bill and Renee. Uh, those are the five people that really work on my car. And the car that I drove last weekend was not the car that I ran at Vegas last fall that we mm. had success with. They built a, they were building a brand new car already for Richie, the son. And uh, after the Vegas race, then they decided they want to put wanted to put a deal together for me to drive the new car this year. So we started the year very, very slow and rough and preseason testing. We ran a couple days, could not get could not get any speed out of the car. Um, ran the baby Gator Nationals, which is the weekend before the Gator National event. Slow. Went to the Gator Nationals. Slow. Went to Pomona. Slow. <laughs> like literally couldn't get this car to get out of its own way. And it's literally, it was literally the biggest part of it was the first 60 feet of the run. 
Mm -hmm. uh, just couldn't get the car to take off and launch. And, uh, but he was, they were pulling their hair out. Pops, I'm, I don't know him that well, but I mean, I could see every run that we would come back, just the, the stress and torment in his eyes. He just was so frustrated. But um, after the Pomona race before Vegas, we went, we took the car to Bakersfield, California and did a test there. And it didn't show any promise either. I went there, Richie drove the car. I said, hey, this was going to be your car. You need to do the test session and drive it. And um, didn't see anything out of the, the day that we tested, but in between the test and going to Vegas, they found two things that were very big and very important that uh, they had missed on uh, and had found a couple other areas that we, we made improvements on. So uh, I literally on Friday at Vegas, when I stepped on the gas to do the burnout, I'm like, whoa, this thing's woke up now. I can tell it's a different race car. And uh, he told me the whole laundry list. I mean, intake, camshafts, uh, did some stuff in the rear end, freeing the rear end up. Uh, we had an alignment issue with the motor and the drive lines, just little things that added up. Uh, but it literally was a way different race car. And we Friday, the two qualifying rounds we had, we didn't even make it down the track. It'd make it a second and a half into the run and literally shake the tires so bad you had to lift. So um, we knew we were we were way on the other side of the needle at that point. And that, that's a good feeling. I mean, it's it's like a racehorse. It's way easier to slow that horse down than it is to sit there and get the whip out and try to get more speed out of it. So we had uh, power. We just had to kind of pull it back and figure out where it needed to be. So we, for the most part, when we started on Friday, it was like starting all over with a new car. I love it because you, th this is racer talk and racers love to hear how you go from not good to testing, overcoming, prevailing. So um, we're in victory lane and, uh, you know, the great Dick Trickle taught me about snapshots, you know, just, you know, whether you're in the race car and you're coming off the corner, you look at the mirror, that's a snapshot or life. Life is full of snapshots. What I really liked about your victory lane and I tuned into that was uh, your wife, Liam, came and gave you a kiss and you said to her, I don't have to borrow your Wally anymore. <laughs> I have my own. And she looked you square in the face like a competitor and she says, you earned it. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I do. It's badass. I, I won't forget that moment. Are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> I, could not, I could not wait for her to get down there. The first person to me and the lady that you saw me hug immediately while I still had my helmet on was Kelly Antonelli and Kelly runs TSR for us. She used to run John force racing and uh, she was looking for a change. And we said, Hey, what a coincidence. We're looking for somebody. But she's the spine and the backbone of the whole program. So Kelly was the first one I hugged, but I kept looking around for Lee. I'm like, she'll be here any second. And But it's a long time, I mean, to, to get on, you know, to celebrate. On the, the part that you miss as a driver in NHRA is when you win the race, normally you get to celebrate with the team right away. The hard part in NHRA is you're a half mile down the track. Yeah. So they, they celebrate on, on the line and then they all get in the tow vehicle and scooters and golf carts and haul ass down the return road. Uh, to get up there to you. But I, I remember that. I will never forget that moment. I, I was so excited to see her up there. And, you know, she's she's really the reason that I'm there. I mean, I, I for multiple reasons. I mean, I'm, we'll, we'll dive deeper, obviously. But, you know, she's my coach. I mean, she's my driver coach. There's so many things like etiquette of just, I don't even know. And I still don't know. I've ran five races now and I'm still confused on the flags at the top end of the track on who's supposed to turn off first and this and that. And it, it can be a dangerous situation if yeah. you're not paying attention. So 
Uh, they always say, when in doubt, just stop. So, uh, but I'm figuring all those things out. But Leah has been the most amazing teacher you could possibly imagine. I mean, we, from the day we met, I asked, started asking a lot of questions about sport because like you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a student of motorsports. I want to understand it. I want to know it. I want to wrap my head around it and my hands around it and understand it. So we've talked about a lot of things. And then I've been to the track the last couple of years and been able to watch and, and learn from that. But uh, then when you get the call that you're going to drive a car for the first time at an event, I'm like, oh, crap, there's all these things that I don't know about and etiquette. I mean, you, you know how I am as a person in motorsports. Uh, talked about the, the loving side and the aggressive and, and frustrating side. A lot of the times when I got mad, people thought I just enjoyed being mad. I hated being mad. I don't like being mad. I'm, I'm like you. You and I are two peas in a pod. We love having fun. We love laughing, love being around people. I hate getting mad and I hate getting mad at other competitors. But when I get mad at them, it's always about etiquette. It's about the stuff that Dale Sr. and Rusty Wallace and Dale Jarrett and Mark Martin, Bobby Labonte, Jeff Gordon, Terry Labonte, all these greats that I raced with, they taught us and they taught you too when you came up. They taught us the etiquette of how to do it the right way. And if you didn't do it the right way, there was an easy fix for those guys. They were going to bust your ass. Yeah, they turned you around, backed you in the fence, and when you were sitting there sliding down the racetrack or stopped or trying to get it fired up to drive to the pits, you had that time to go, I think I made a mistake, and you had to figure it out. But that's how you learn. And they really don't – it's it's sad in our sport now how vanilla and wimpy all these drivers are. They want it, They literally won't confront each other at the track. They'll just sit there and wait till they get home and, and beat on each other on Twitter where nobody has to face anybody. So – we grew up in a different era and a different age. I don't know how I got off on this tangent. No, it's, a, it's a good subject. Don't, don't worry about it. I do it all the time. But let me, let me say this. When we had a gentleman's agreement in the NASCAR Cup Series that when there was a big wreck, we all slowed down. Because at the time, we didn't have the, the lines underneath the asphalt to freeze the field. So we froze the field ourselves. Well, early in my career, I raced Terry Labonte. You know, I passed him and I thought, oh, I'm getting him, I'm getting him. He took me, he, Terry Labonte took me between the trailers. And to me, that's what you did, Rusty did. We, they're like, hey, come here. And you know, oh, shit. And we went between the trailers. And it was that little private hallway. People yeah. like you or, or you know, Dale Sr., we would uh, address people. Those days are gone. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, I mean, I remember drivers coming up in the lounge and, and, it wasn't always bad. Sometimes they'd come in there and tell you when you did something good too, and that you did something right. They would come in and praise you for it. But if you did something wrong, exactly. There were meetings in between trailers. They would literally come in your trailer and talk to you in your own lounge and talk in each other's motor homes after practice was over or after the race was over, you handled it and you, and you did it eye to eye. You did it face to face. You did it as men. And, and exactly what you said. I mean, we didn't have timelines in the racetrack when the when the caution came out, you literally were allowed to race to the to the start finish line. Yeah. And you could pick up 10, 15, 20 spots if you wanted if it, if the caution came out in turns one and two. But everybody it was it was handled respectfully. And uh, we did it because when when cars wrecked then we didn't have soft walls. We didn't have containment seats. Uh, the safety at that time was as good as it could be at that time, but it had a lot of room for improvement, but, um, we all took care of each other and, and there was a, there was a proper etiquette. And as time went on and I tell people, I, I honestly say when we lost Dale senior, 
that was the beginning of the end of the etiquette. There is no etiquette with these guys anymore. And that's okay. As long as we don't care, you and I don't care what the rules are. We just want it to be the same for everybody. And we want everybody to race the same. You so, remember that verbiage, gentleman's agreement? Yes. Yeah. And and we all did great with it. And, and we had great <laughs> races, great racing. Everybody respected each other. And sure, there's times that guys made mistakes or went over the line and, and we all kept each other in check. But it's definitely a different day and age in NASCAR. And, and that's that's what I was, I guess, um, where I was going with that is that's what I'm trying to make sure I learn in the sport of NHRA is I want to be respectful coming in. It doesn't matter. I don't, it does not matter anything that I've done in my past before I got there. I'm a rookie just like everybody else, but I have the way I am as a person and the way as I am as a driver is a, I want to respect the sport. I want to respect the people in the sport and I want to learn the etiquette. And I want to do it the right way. And Leah will tell you, I focus on making sure that I'm doing it the right way. I'm, I, I can do things. And, and then at the end of the day, we'll go to the hotel. I'm like, Hey, I did this. Was this right? Was this the right way to do it or, or not? And, and literally some of the guys that I line up with for qualifying runs, um, you know, you're not racing each other, but you're paired up against each other for qualifying. And, you know, in, my, in our class, we have injected cars and then we have some cars that have blowers on them. Mm -hmm. and the way they stage is different than what the alcohol cars that, that just are injected, that uh, how they stage and everything. So I would literally talk to every driver that I was going to and say, hey, you know, help me understand how you need to stage so I don't mess you up because I don't want to mess your run up. You know, if I mess my run up, that's on me, but I don't want to mess your run up because I don't know what I'm doing. And I think those guys really respect the fact that I don't sit there and go, I don't care about any of these guys. All I care about is myself. Uh, I, I care about the guys I'm racing with. And um, it, it, because of that, I've built a good rapport in a short amount of time with the teams and the drivers that are in my class in the pit area. Yeah. I want to compliment you. Then we're going to move on from drag racing up. Uh, Number one, you're, you're the ultimate racer. I'm saying that. The other thing that I know about you is that grown men in racing, they try to be tough guys and they'll, they'll, they'll leap over things they should have focused on. But when, when I'm around you, one thing I've noticed about you is you take the most simplest thing and you're very serious about it. And I noticed that about you years ago. I'm like, Tony's focused in on what I thought was just the simplest thing. I want to thank you, Tony, because you made me be more mature in that area. So like, did you just say you're mature? No, don't, no, don't, don't. <laughs> I got everybody thinking I'm a nut right now. You're gaining on it. Yeah, <laughs> you're gaining on it, but I mean, shit, you got a you, long way to go, bud. I want everybody to know that about you, that at the start of, of a manual uh, of, you know, instructions, whether it's life or racing, you're dead serious from the start uh, about just the most simplest thing. So I just wanted to compliment you on that and, and tell you that you taught me that you don't got to be a tough guy. Let's get this right. Let's start out. Right. And uh, that's why when I saw you going to drag race in school, you know, I thought that was so badass. You know, you were learning from the very bottom um, and honestly, when I did that, I had no intention of, of racing. I literally went at the end of 2020 because, you know, Lee and I met in March. And then at the end of, toward the end of the season, I had built enough of a rapport with her team to where I, I was allowed and was asked to sit in in the debriefs with the Learning the lingo. And the, yeah. And I, and I was sitting there and I mean, I would sit with my shoulders <laughs> like this and I would try not to breathe too loud. And, and 
I got to listen to all the debrief and, and I would listen to Leah talk about the run and what she had to do driving wise. Anybody that thinks a drag race, you just go straight. You end up at, you can go a straight line to get there, but none of those cars go exactly straight the entire time. So you have to drive. But I, I sat and listened to all those things and I sat there and, and you and I've both done it. We've all, you know, you and I visit different race tracks and yeah. watch different cars race and, and, when you hear people talk about it, you go, well, we think we understand and, and, and know what it would feel like to do that. But when she would talk about something, I'm like, well, I, in my head, I understand it, but I don't really know what that feels like. And so you I'm wanted to feel it. So I wanted to go to the drag racing school and just get a better pers perspective on it. Just so when I sat in those meetings, awesome. then I don't have to ask all those questions of. And, and at the end of the school, you, you feel about a tenth of the things you need to learn but it gives you a good base and understanding of how, uh, how it all works. And, you know, I started in a super comp car there at Holly school and um, halfway through the day, he had brought his alcohol car for me to drive as well. And that car is a 220 mile an hour car in a quarter mile. So oh my Lord, gets your undivided attention, not because of the speed, but because of the acceleration to get there. I mean, our cup cars cannot get to 200 mile an hour in a quarter mile. It just no. physically is impossible. So, um, that's how it really started. But I, I didn't have any intentions at that time of, of doing anything more than just going to that school. You know, oh God, I, I, I got to wrap this, this part up. But when we were at bike week, I told you, Tony, I did a whole shot in the Jegs pro stock. And I said something to you that I thought was kind of funny, but you took it serious. I said, you know, when I did that whole shot, my brain was here. Yeah. And the G force was so unbelievable because I was already in my fifties and the car was up here. And you said that that is a big deal. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, that's the hardest thing to explain to people because they're like, man, you can drive anything. Well, I feel like, yeah, I can drive anything. But the thing that happens is and, and the easiest way to describe it is if you wanted to bench press 400 pounds, you don't just start with 400 pounds. You start with a lighter weight. And as you get used to it and you build up to it, then you keep adding the weight and you just keep building and working up our brains have to learn to process information. So you think of fighter pilots and you think of right. drag racers and you think about all these people that drive things and, and fly things that move very quickly and change direction very quickly. Their brain has to learn and it doesn't just automatically do it. Your brain has to train itself. If it doesn't have an application to, to grow and be better, it, it won't. No different than lifting weights and building muscles. So I had to drive slower cars that didn't have as much acceleration as the top fuel car just to get my brain to start wrapping itself around it. Because I told you the first time I drove Leah's top fuel car, they said, go to the 330 foot cone because all the cars you and I've ever driven, if we want to ease up to it, we just run part throttle. And then we want to go faster, a little more throttle. It doesn't work that way in drag racing because there's timers, there's all these sensors that have to go off, but you have to stab the gas when the light changes and then it has to go through and do its work. So to work up to it, you just go shorter distances. You start at the 330 cone, then you go to the 660 cone, then you go to the 1,000 foot, and then you go to the end of the quarter mile in the alcohol car. So, but I hit the gas, got to the 330 cone and saw the 330 cone, shut it off, and my brain was probably at 150 feet. And like I tell everybody, I've driven Leah's car 16 runs. I, I went 322 miles an hour to 3.76 wow. uh, laps time. And that's hauling ass. Yeah. Well, they're running into 330s when they're hauling ass, but 322 was fast for me. Uh, but 
trying to get your brain to understand. And, you know, you and I, we could go to Bristol in happy hour and run a hundred laps in happy hour before it was over in a one hour session in a eight hour day at an HRA track. If you have a good day, you can get four, four runs in with the alcohol on, you get five maybe. So to try to get your brain to understand and learn all these things, it takes time to do it. And that's really how I ended up in the alcohol car with the McPhillips family is I drove her car at Vegas a year ago and spun the tires the last two runs out after 200 feet and didn't even know I was spinning the tires mm-hmm. because it was still pulling at 1.6 G's. I mean, it's still pulling hard, but I couldn't feel it. And I got very frustrated. And, and also at the same time, the reality came in of, you know, when the thing goes down through there and there's no problems, it, it's, it's okay. It's, it's the 40 things that could happen during that run of a cylinder going out or uh, spinning the tires and not catching it quick enough. There's, there's just so many things that you got to be prepared for and, and ready for it. That's what scared me of if I'm behind the car and something happens, there's a good chance I can't catch up to it to, to recover it. So uh, that's, that's why I took a step back and, and came down to run alcohol. I, I totally get it. Uh, I'm going to end the drag racing segment as I flew with the blue angels and I was pulling six, eight G's and I was going out and the pilot was just flying beautifully because like you said, he worked up to it. You know, you're right. You got to train your brain. So Tony, let's move on. Uh, Whoops. Boy, that was loud. Listen, I take this interview serious. I got notes. Actually I have notes. Well, I wonder who wrote them out for you. What? Who made them for you? Cause you didn't write those out yourself. I did a lot. I swear to God. You know what I do, Tony? I get on my phone and, and I make, oh, there's me and Kim. I get, I got a note section. Uh, Connie from uh, Sparkle called me. <laughs> but anyway, I get that note section. Helmets in. <laughs> yeah, uniforms. I think that's for that S- your SRX deal. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to be down there. I'm going down to Charlotte. Uh, by the way, you've done a, a really good job with that SRX deal. And I, I'm honored August 17th, that last SRX race at Wheatland. Uh, you know, you all invited me, and uh, that's a big honor for the third third child that always feels lesser. So I'm going to fit my seat. Uh, you are the one, one that I'm worried about at that event. That you're the one that I'm like. You're the guy of the group that I got circled. That this is the guy that I'm going to have to beat for the win if I'm going to win that race. Stop it. Well, so we um, we got to move on to NASCAR. Uh, you are the owner part owner of Stuart Haas. It's a big responsibility. And we all know, okay, I'm saying this, you're not. Gene called you, somebody called you, you go there. I mean, it's, this is Christmas. You, you save the day, you immediately win a championship. Uh, you got, you know, all your people in place. It, and now Stuart Haas is one of the top tier teams. There's no, as Rusty would say, no doubt about that. So um, you're a full-fledged owner now. And you, you have all the right to say whatever you want to say because you know everything now about NASCAR, even though you're running NHRA. You, you can do everything at the same time. I say, I say, Tony can chew gum and walk at the same time better than anybody. So I'm going to ask you some questions about, about NASCAR because I've heard you already. So I'm already a little privy to what you think. Tech inspection with these new next-gen cars and the penalties. What's your opinion on this? I don't want you to get in trouble. 
the bad thing is I have an opinion about it. I have a very strong opinion about it. You got the same as mine. But, and I said this at Bristol when, you know, we were down with uh, uh, Chris Myers and, and Clint and I were doing the pre-race show and it was discussed about, you know, the Hendrick saga of getting penalized and losing points and crew chief suspended. And then they win the appeal. And then the next week, two more cars go back and a windshield screw gets cut off and they lose all these points again for a windshield screw that got cut off. So, um, yeah, I had the, this is the part that I really hate about the sport right now. And this is what frustrates me about NASCAR right now is, yeah, I, I, I do have an opinion. I have a very strong opinion about uh, how they're doing things. But if I say something, yeah, then, you're an owner. We know, then, that. then it's going to cost me money. It's going to cost me points. Yeah. It's, it's going to hurt my drivers. It's going to hurt my organization. And so as much as I have an opinion, I'm scared to voice it because yeah. – that NASCAR has shown now you you can't have an opinion. You can have an opinion, but keep your mouth shut is basically yeah. the moral of the story. So let, let me say it, uh, and I don't want you to answer, because one thing we want to remind everybody is that you are a NASCAR owner. And I think we all lose sight of that because you announce the races, you drag race. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you've got Donnie Shots in the world of outlaws. Uh, you do so much good for motorsports throughout the world. Tony, thank you for doing that. But I want to say this. Kyle Petty said it exactly right. He says, when daddy, people in the South call their dad's daddy, when daddy raced, when it was Lee Petty, Kyle Petty, you know, Richard Petty, all the Petties, he said, when we went to the racetrack, it was us against them. So my opinion is this. Look, we're coming to the racetrack. Here's my car. Jack it up. Do whatever you want. We're going to go through inspection as many times as you want at this racetrack. But I paid $500,000 for this car or 450, whatever it is. And when I leave, it's my car. I don't think it's right to continue inspection when you leave the facility uh, because I've given you all these, hey, listen, we can find anything wrong with your house if I go to your house. Mm -hmm. Hey, Tony M. Joyce, you know. So if you're going to take my race car and study it, th that's not right. You inspected it at the racetrack when we unloaded, before qualifying, before the race. I beat you. The end. I feel comfortable with this because I've said it okay. before. Okay, you're saying it. <laughs> and, you, and you remember this. When when I started and when you were you had already been in the sport for a little while, when I started, there were two guys in the tower that had a stopwatch in each hand. Two guys, a total of four stopwatches to sit there and time 43 cars on pit road for pit road speeding. Correct. They're all 100% right. If you or I pissed off NASCAR the week before or we got under their skin or ruffled their feathers, guess what happened the very next week? Got a pit road speed and penalty. 100%. And that's how NASCAR kept the etiquette and kept the drivers in line and, and kept control. And that's, we all understood that. Yep. And it gotcha. was like, yeah, we get it. And, and, you know, on top of that, if you really went overboard, they'd call you to the trailer and have a talk with you. And they would explain why they have to do things the way they do. And I don't want this to sound like a bash session against NASCAR because no, they have the hardest job in motorsports to control all this. So now we're in an era where they've kind of backed themselves in a corner a little bit. Now you got all this gambling and betting on mm -hmm. the sport. Well, they can't, they can't sit there and give you a pit road speeding penalty if it's not warranted. If you didn't do it, they can't charge you for a pit road speeding penalty. 
like they used to. Now you change the outcome of the game if you did. Now you've changed it and you've you've you're controlling the sport from that standpoint and screwing up the betting. So they don't do that anymore. There's no debris, you know, debris cautions where somebody threw a water bottle out and it's clear against the inside wall and they want a caution because they want to bunch the field up. They literally cannot do that anymore. Yeah. So now if you're NASCAR, how do you control everything afterwards? And how do you control Kevin Harvick's mad and he's talking about the cars are unsafe and, and they're talking about this procedure screwed up and that, how does NASCAR then keep these guys under control? They take their cars back to the shop and they find it. (laughs) Tear it down. Just like you said, my house, they tear it down till they find something they don't like. And every car is going to have something that they can find. So that's their way of controlling it. So with that, again, it's, it's, it's again, why it's like the inspection process and this and that man, the, the, the disco room and the, the lasers and all that to scan it, the technology involved in that and how good a job NASCAR has done to control that is amazing. It's phenomenal. The Hawkeye system, they had to figure all that out and figure out how to control all this. NASCAR has done an amazing job from that standpoint, but I agree with you to sit there and be upset because somebody said something, you know, the Denny Hamlin case is a perfect example. You know, he gets on his podcast a day or two later and says what he says. Well, what's the statute of limitations? Yeah. You know, two Can years, ago, a year from now, years ago, I wrecked Denny Hamlin on purpose. Well, what are you going to do? Take the, take the win away now. I mean, what do you do? What, what? And that's what I asked him in a meeting. I said, where does it stop? It's like, you can't control, you can't, you can't babysit, you can't monitor everything. And and I think they are making mistakes, but it's, it's their playground. It's their, their rules. And and we all play by them. So let's move on that way and keep you and me out of trouble because I'm (laughs) still, I constantly live in a state of trouble. It's it's how little or big is it getting? My my brother Rusty says, Herm, I watch all that stuff you do. He says, you push it just far enough. (laughs) Well, let me know if I go over the line. So, like I said, I just want everybody to understand. I still love the sport of NASCAR. Still, I still love what it's about. It's there's just some growing pains with the new car. And there's some things that I feel like they they've kind of got out a check on, but um, it's, it's not for us to judge that it's their game. And, and, you know, they always have said, and I I remember Brian France saying, if you don't like it here, you don't have to be here. You can leave at any time. It, the sport was here before you got here and it'll be here long after you, you leave. And, and he's absolutely, he was absolutely right. But at some point they all have to realize too, that we're all working together to make it better. Yeah. That, that reminds me of when I, I interviewed, uh, we talked to Jonathan Davenport at, at Bristol for that NASCAR race day show came back. And I, I said, Jonathan, I want to de bullshit this. I see, you know, it's dirt fans hate NASCAR. I, I said, you're here to run the cup race. Do you hate NASCAR? He says, Kenny, this is a dream come true. All dirt racers love NASCAR. This is the biggest moment of my life, my career. So you're right. You, you can do whatever you want to do. You, you don't have to run NASCAR, but everybody wants to. The, the thing about the dirt community, because I have a sprint car series, I have a sprint car team. Hey, you uh, had the series too. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. I've got a car that runs World of Outlaws. The mistakes that NASCAR are making are very transparent and everybody in the, the industry. And it's like NASCAR doesn't realize the lower, what you they would consider the lower levels of motorsports, the grassroots level. Look at NASCAR different than they did 10 years ago and 20 years ago. 
I mean, absolutely. It's every driver's dream to be a NASCAR driver at some point, but then you'll pull on, you and I both do this. We pull into a dirt track and people come over and go, what the hell was NASCAR thinking? Oh, they hate listen to it nonstop. And you can't penalize me for that. Yeah. If my cars end up at tech next week, because I said that they're penalizing the wrong guy, you know, it's, they're making the mistakes and they've got to somewhat get themselves back in check. Tony, I spend all the time at the dirt tracks trying to, you know, help NASCAR and have these dirt fans go, look, I know you're upset, but NASCAR is awesome. And I spend my whole dirt racing career doing that. So let's move on. Uh, I want you to do, uh, tell me if this is a rumor or not. So uh, the new car, it, it was said that Rick Hendrick, Roger Penske, Jack Roush, Richard Childress, all the top car owners, I want you to tell me if this is true or false. They went to NASCAR and they said, because you're an owner, they said, save us because we're spending so much money molding these cars. Just let us get a car so we can get rid of, and we got so many employees, it's killing us. Is it true? Did I'm not saying you, but did, did all the owners of NASCAR ask for this next gen car? Absolutely. I mean, wow. it, it was, it had to happen because the spending per team per year was getting astronomical. The resources that you were having to put into it and what it, what it was doing was separating lower third, middle third and top tier teams. The top tier teams were well-funded, had a lot of resources. The, the lower tier teams, it was all they could do to just survive and get cars to the racetrack so we needed for the health of the sport we needed to find a way to cut costs to cut back on i mean i think gibbs at one point had over 600 employees for four cup teams and, and running one car one race yeah yeah running a car one race and then stripping it it's crazy yeah and and that was the standard i mean that's how far the competition has has pushed itself and how technology has got involved and pushed this sport so the, the owners realized for the longevity of it from the ownership side that we needed to ask for that. And uh, I think it's the new car is, I don't know, I, I have opinions about the new car. I don't think I would have asked a sports car manufacturer to design a stock car. Mm. That's where I'll go with that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're going to wrap the NASCAR up. Uh, your opinion. Uh, so I asked Austin Dillon. I said, Austin, why are you all beating the hell out of each other? He goes, Kenny, he says, years ago, we, we knocked the radiator out. You couldn't do it. He goes, they got these things so strong. They're like German tanks. And that's the reason we're beating the hell out of each other. Now, with that said, you know, you're the best, Tony. You're one of the best the sport's ever seen. Because the front ends are strong, should we be beating the hell out of each other? Well, you're onto something there. The front ends are strong. The toe links in the rear are not strong. That is, that's the thing that you have to guard. I mean, you, and, and you can change them obviously during a pit stop, but that is the weak link. I mean, we used to be able to bang off the wall and it didn't take us out of the race. Now it screwed the sheet metal up and probably had a tire rub with it. But that's the great thing about the composite bodies. They don't, you don't really get as many tire rubs because the bodies will push back out. The hard part is the, the suspension components and, and having the, the toe links in the back uh, for independent rear suspension. I mean, that is kind of a weak link in the cars right now. Right. All right. We're done with NASCAR. I don't think you and I are in trouble. 
Yeah. Listen, it's going to take a couple weeks. They won't, they may be sl slick about it if they're going to penalize us. Yeah. Oh, you I hope anything. not. I mean, I, I say that and I give them, I critique them because I really want the best for the sport and I appreciate the opportunity I had in NASCAR and what it's given me to reinvest in motorsports and keep going. So let's, let's wrap it up like this. What is good about NASCAR? Well, you look over the last 75 years of what, where it started and where it's at now. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's the largest form of motorsports in the United States. So to see all the great drivers and, and, you know, now be a part of that 75. Congratulations, race, Tony. Thank you. Um, you. You sit there and you, when you get older, you start looking back at how thing, the big picture of everything. And uh, you look at what Bill Sr. did and what Bill Jr. and Brian and, and now Jim France and, and Ben Kennedy, I, I think the world of Ben Kennedy, I, I don't always agree with him and we don't always get along, but I really respect Ben Kennedy. I think he is the future of NASCAR. Uh, I think he will carry this sport for the next 50 years easily. Yeah, Daryl Walter, on that like this, Daryl Walter said, hey, listen, just because I complain about NASCAR doesn't mean I hate him. You know, I love him. Right. It's our sport. So moving on, uh, this will be our last segment. Uh, Dirt racing. Why, you got somewhere else better to be today? No, I, I'm, I'm good enough to hang out. I feel like we've been doing this forever. I, I'm having a good time. Well, don't don't have like five minutes. Are we having a good time? We're having a great time. I love that. And I'm home. I don't have to go anywhere. I have an off day. <laughs> I keep, yeah, I think I keep saying that because I'm not nervous, but this is our first one and it's a big deal to have one of the greatest drivers. And I won't tell everybody we're good friends. Uh, Dirt racing. Are you still embarrassed about me? You remember that day? No, I was I was afraid of you. And when you <laughs> confronted me about it, you came out of the. It was Daytona in the toter in the RV section. You come up and you said the media says you're afraid of me, and I said I am. But we we moved past that. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I I was learning you. I was learning you, and we discussed that actually. Yeah, I, yeah. I was taking you wrong, uh, and like you said, I think. You know, uh, I would see your tenaciousness and I didn't understand that you were just, you know, going at it. You know, um, it, it reminds me of David. If he was my first crew chief, he says uh, I was I was going at it with him. I was arguing over a sway bar because I was kind of I'm a, kind of a chassis guy. He grabbed me by the collar, said, boy, when we come to this racetrack, we love each other. We're in war. Don't don't take anything personal. But we're in war together. We're fighting on the same team. Yes, yes. And, and I'll be 60 in August. And sometimes I wish life was the other way around because if I'd have known some of that stuff, but I think that's part of the journey. Yeah. Uh, so, so dirt racing, uh, I'm going to say a couple things and maybe you comment on it. Not so much a question. Uh, I think in totality of all of America or maybe the world, when I look at auto racing, it seems like the dirt super late models are like the greatest thing in racing. They're just, it's just skyrocketing. It's, everything's better. It's more money to win. Uh, am I wrong or right? Or and just comment on that. No, I think you're right. I mean, the, I think, and I don't even think it's just dirt late models. I mean, we did the dirt million last year at Eldora for the late models. This and year, you're on Eldora. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about that one too. <laughs> We're doing a million dollar to win wing sprint car race this year. So, Dirt races, they're going through the roof. I mean, uh, Jackson, Minnesota is doing a 250000 to win wing sprint car race. Um, 
you know, the purses are getting higher and higher and higher in short track racing, which is great, but it has to. The technology in the dirt late models is way out of control now. I mean, Kevin Rumley is the guy that that really started revolutionizing modern late models now to where they're at. The but Ray Abraham of dirt. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the best way you could say it. But he is he has taught these guys, you know, our world, we learned about downforce. We didn't think anything about side force. And then when we learned about side force, it was a game changer in, in NASCAR racing. Well, now they brought that technology to dirt late model racing. And you watch cars. I, I literally remember, and this might have been five years ago even, I remember watching Jonathan Davenport at the World 100, got the lead and was driving off from the field. He caught the back of the pack and couldn't pass the last place car. Yeah. It was so air dependent that it was no different than what we complained about as drivers in the cup series and what you see in IndyCar and formula one about being air dependent. So uh, it really shows how the technology has changed in, in the dirt late model world. Sprint cars are the same way always have been because of the big wings on top, but um, wing sprint cars, dirt late models, and even the modifieds now. I mean, I sat there and looked at the car. Uh, I was watching the broadcast, uh, watching Kyle Larson win in Justin Allgaier's car at Eldora. Yeah, Tuesday me night. too. And I looked at that thing in victory lane and I'm like, man, 15 years ago, that would have been the most cheated up race car you've ever seen in your life. But it was brilliant. I'm looking at it. I'm like, that was, that was done really nice. That was done really nice. That was done really nice. And I'm just watching it on the computer. But then you watch the car go around the racetrack and you're like, yeah, that's why it drives nice too, because of how good a job Justin and his crew and his team have done at building a car that is totally illegal um the right side was beautiful oh it's i mean you <laughs> look at it, we know what we're looking at when you and i look at it and we're like that's pretty damn sexy right there i mean that's that's getting it done yeah so um you talk about you and i watching the races um six ten years ago myself and bob Sargent were driving up interstate 55 north and we're trying to figure out if flow or dirt vision streaming is good for the sport What's your opinion on, uh, you know, all the new streaming sites? Uh, well, Dirt Vision started it with the sprint cars and, and then went to the late models and the big blocks. And then here came Flow Sports. Yeah. And they have revolutionized and it's been a game changer for short track racing. Uh, not only just short track racing, I mean, they're now moving into drag racing. Um, you name it, they're in it. And, and when I first, when somebody first said, flow i said okay well what is it and they said well you just got to kind of look i mean there's everything from marching band competitions yeah. <laughs> yeah. started with three guys and two of the brothers one was a wrestler and one was in track and field so they i mean they do high school track and field high school wrestling college track and field college wrestling and everything in between the jitsu you name it they cover it if it's sports they're covering it and uh, to bring the motorsports aspect, I mean, Mark and his staff have totally changed the game of how fans have the opportunity to watch races. We all, you know, you live in St. Louis. I live in Indiana or Arizona, depending on what half of the country we're on racing that weekend. But we can't drive to all these racetracks, but we have the ability to go to a track and at the same time on our phone be watching another race when, when there's downtime. So we have the ability to enjoy more and more and more motorsports, and it's all cataloged, so you can go back and watch it. For Flow to do what they've done, to give the fans, 
an opportunity for $150 a year to have all of their content. I mean, if you want to watch, if you're like, oh, I bought it for the racing, but yeah, my kids into, you know, my five-year-olds into the softball. Yeah. Look, they, you can watch it and all of it. And, and it's crazy. And and I think flow has really been a game changer. I, I, I love what they're doing. Um, you know, it's kind of created a storm in, in our sport though. The, the, the track operators and owners are fearful that because of that, people aren't going to come to the racetrack. Well, if you live in Skagit, Washington, you're not coming Tuesday night to Eldora. Right. You still watch it. Right. So I, I don't feel like it hurts the tracks and I hope it doesn't hurt the tracks as bad uh, as we, as we are talking about. Um, but it's great for the teams. It's great for the drivers. It gets them that exposure. Um, you know, it really helps showcase their talent and stuff. So we, as, owners and team owners and series owners, we get to watch these young and up and coming guys. And it's hard to sit there and go, well, yeah, I don't know anything about him. Well, yeah, I got to see him Tuesday night, or I can go back and pull up a race and watch him run. That's that's stuff we didn't have access to years ago. So I, I'm a big fan of it right now. Yeah, I think it's good too, because we don't have to rely. Listen, we always say we want everybody at the racetrack, but yes, and we still do. I mean, that's, that is the most important thing. What people don't realize is that it's an ecosystem. And for all this to work, you can't just sit at home and watch watch it on, on streaming and, and this to be sustainable. You still have to go to the racetrack. You got to support your local tracks because you got uh, Copart, companies like Copart that are going in and buying racetracks left and right. And the reason they're doing that is because they can bring all their cars there and they don't, they don't have to worry about EPA because just about every racetrack's got oil and stuff in the dirt. And it's an EPA nightmare, uh, but they can buy the property because it's already that way. So uh, they go in and they're shutting racetracks down to expand their business. They don't care about motorsports; they just care about building their. I never sport. knew this. This is interesting. Yeah, this is something Mike Joy pointed out to me. Copart is a big factor in buying up a lot of racetracks that are struggling right now, and uh, you know, it's for these track operators and owners that are struggling. It's it's yeah. a, it's a way out for them, unfortunately, yeah. but. It's shutting down racetracks across the country because legendary boys just shut down. Yeah. And Copart is buying a lot of these racetracks and and turning them into salvage yards. Wow. I never knew that. What do you see? What do you see out your window right now? We good? It's pretty, it's pretty slow right now. I guess the grazing period is over or they've moved away from eating my bushes outside. I know you're trying to do an interview. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, as you look back on your career, what was the happiest time? What what was it? When was it? Uh, Mine was when I ran the Xfinity series, the Bush series. Uh, I was winning. It was a simple time for me. When I got the cup, it was rough. What was your happiest time? I would, I'll say now is pretty close to the happiest time. But I would say originally what I've always told everybody was my happiest times was when I was racing USAC, um, when I was running a midget and a sprint car and silver crown car, and you'd drive with your buddies to the races. And Lewis. then you might be in a fight with each other at the racetrack, but then you're like, shit, we got to ride home together. The white nine. Yeah. Yeah. The Lewis car. And, uh, but when I was back, back then, before I won my first championship, I mean, you would sit there and literally in a four week period in a, in a month, you if you had three rough weeks and you didn't make much money, you were getting by and getting race to race, but then rent, 
utilities, all that stuff. That oh, I'm getting nervous. I'm getting nauseous thinking about those days. Real world. <laughs> You'd sit there on week four and go, man, I can't screw up because I got to pay bills next week, you know, and, and it kind of changed how you raced on week four if you had a rough first three weeks. But that was when I had the most fun. I mean, life was simple. Um, you know, I was in my my early mid twenties and and really enjoying life as a race car driver. And, and originally, when I started as a kid, I when I got in my early teens, I thought, man, if I could ever just make a living driving a race car and support myself, if I could make make a living driving midgets and sprint cars, that'd be the ultimate for me. And, and did you now? We, we got there. We got there. We just yeah. kept trucking though. So, uh, but yeah, those those were the best times when I was uh, you know racing in USAC back in the day. Well, Tony, listen, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for saying yes to do this. This is a big deal. We, I, I kind of dreamed it up. I told Charlie, I said, Charlie, one of these days we're going to interview people. And he goes, well, we can do that now. I'm like, really? So <laughs> Welcome to technology, bud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. You, you know, and I, I got to say, we've had a great feed and it's way easier than me traveling five hours to your house. And uh, thank you so much. Do good. You mistakenly you have reminded me everything you're doing my lord eldora sprint cars drag cars cup cars it's unbelievable congratulations on all your success congratulations on once again uh being one of the greatest race car drivers to ever live with nascar 75 but there's so much more to you than that well i i appreciate all that thank you so much um and I, I would, anytime you call, I, I've done your brother's podcast. And uh, when you, yeah. when you sent me the message, I'm like, I, I didn't know what my schedule was the rest of the week at the initially, but I'm like, yeah, I'm 100% all in doing this with you. But I'd say one of the proudest moments of my life and in, in my years of NASCAR, and I can't take all the credit. Kenny Schrader gets a lot of the credit as well. Kenny Schrader and I talking you into getting into dirt track racing. Yeah and getting you in dirt cars. And, and then a whole new Kenny Wallace came out of his shell mm. and to see that and be a part of that, that's probably one, what I, one of my greatest accomplishments in motorsports is introducing you to dirt track racing and getting you hooked on it. Uh, I know saved my life. that I'm proud of that. Um, seeing you, you know, I was working the track at, at Tulsa at the chili bowl and seeing you in a midget the first time, you helped me. There was no happier moment. I was like a proud father watching you. Every <laughs> I was twitching the way. wheel too much. You yeah, helped me. But you were learning. And, and uh, but just the fact that here, your background was always pavement racing and NASCAR racing. And we got you into something that, that you've really became passionate and happy with. And to see that in you uh, truly has made me happy as your friend to see you enjoying dirt track racing and other forms of motorsports like we do. I'm smiling from ear to ear. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. We won that. We won your 2005 Prelude of the Dream. And I, I ran my ass off trying to catch you, and you just drove away. And I had Don O'Neill as my crew chief that night. And he was so, I won't say he was mad at me, but he was frustrated. And I'm like, Don, I tried everything I've ever learned in a race car to catch him. I, I said, I know this track better than anybody in the field. I said, I, I did everything in my power and he just ran a perfect race. There was, he never made a mistake and, and you didn't, you ran every lap flawlessly. So we, we, you looked at me in victory lane. You said, what was that all about? I think I said to you, maybe I should have been a dirt racer. I thought it was like an out of body experience for you. It was, it was crazy. But, 
man, it, it, like I said, though, I mean, the, I wish the fans and, and the fans know you now for who you are and, and how uh, they know your personality. And you've always had that personality, but to see you smile and how much fun you're having, you have broke out of the shell and the shadow of your brothers. I, I know you always say you're the third brother, but you're not. You're, you're your own man and, and you're, you're your own Wallace. You have built that. So uh, you need to embrace that and start embracing it because you, you're not Rusty's brother. You're not Mike's brother. You're by God, you're Kenny damn Wallace. And you, you're you, man. I mean, I'm you red. made a huge impact on so many people. I needed that. That was great therapy. Tony, listen, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate it. I want to remind all the fans that uh, listen, we're doing it. We are in podcast form now. We are on Spotify, iTunes. This interview was awesome for me. I hope it was for all of you. But until then, uh, we're just going to keep on rolling. We got NASCAR's greatest drivers. We got more in the pipeline. So until then, see you later, everybody.